20 years ago, a bar was born in New York City that changed the way we drink today. Two years after that, it arrived in London. Fast forward those 20 years and Milk and Honey in London is still open and just as cutting edge as it was all those moons ago. Our guest today not only manages that legacy, but is creating his own. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. Pierre-Marie Bisson holds a special place in my heart. Not only is he the general manager of Milk and Honey, but also a great supporter of Lush Life cocktail tours. There is no way I could do the tour without stopping in for a London calling made by him or his team. Pick up A Proper Drink by Robert Simonson if you want to read all about Milk and Honey and its influence. We're here today to find out everything we can about Pierre and how he made his way to this iconic bar. Then he reveals a few of his favorite spots in London and Paris to drink and gives us some top tips for the home bartender. We started this interview with a London calling in hand. You know, it's really exciting for me to be drinking a London calling in the place where it was born at Milk and Honey with you who made it. So no, I, 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 I made that drink, but Chris, uh, Chris Jepson uh, created that drink in 2002. Um, and it just shows how drinks should be about just balance and taste and that drink is basically just a, a gin sour with a tiny bit of sherry uh, which will just give this kind of nice slight nuttiness slight saltiness to, to it and and that's probably the reason why um, 18 years later it's one of the only drinks uh, probably the only drink that's never left the menu uh, and that you can probably find in any cocktail bar around the world you can probably ask for a London calling and people would, would know what it is I think, yeah, any cocktail bar in the world. But I'm interested in the ingredients that made you. So we know where the London cocktail was, the London calling cocktail was born. Now, how about you? Where were you born? I was born in Caen, in Normandy. Ah, oh, with the apples. Uh, exactly, in the Calvados region. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, just a little, um, little har- like harbor town, uh, family of sailors, really. Um, the, first, the first thing in... Uh, in the photo album, the family photo album is literally the, the, the telegraph that my dad was sent when I was born because he was obviously at sea, just to say that the, the son and the mum were doing okay. And how often did he come back? When I was a kid, not that much. He was away quite often, but um, we're a family of five now. And basically after the, the third child, um, we moved to Brittany. And both of my parents were still in the Navy, but that's when... Uh, when my uh, my second brother was born, he decided that he should uh, try and find more of a desk job. So we moved to the Persian suburbs then. So we'd actually be a family. And then two more joined the family, a third brother and a little sister. And um, yeah, that's when he realized that um, he needed to do something else. And he became a, a naval attaché in um, Beijing for the French embassy. So we all moved to China for a couple of years. Do you remember your time in France? Or how old were you when you went to China? Um, something like nine or ten. Mm-hmm. So yeah I, yeah, I did my uh, all my primary school in, uh, in the Parisian suburbs. And then I did the, the first years of, uh, of high school in, uh, in China. And where in China? 
Beijing. Beijing, you said that. Yeah. Sorry. Um, where would you remember, and how long Absolutely. were you there? I was there for three years. Um, I went back a couple of years ago to see how how that changed because I hadn't been. I left in 2002, actually. Um, so I went back as my my little sister actually lives there now. So we kind of went down memory lane because she was she was three when we went there and six when we left. So she, she didn't really remember anything. But I took her to the same restaurant we used to go uh, on Sundays that was uh, near a, a, a park near where we lived. The place where we lived, which was basically a a four-year compound, uh, is heavily protected by guards and everything. But I just went and waved and basically just said hi and if you look confident enough any, anywhere uh, anywhere is free of access and we just went there and, uh, and although a few things have changed there's basically just this, a big statue of a lion that's still there so we just took a picture sent it to the rest of the family and, and it was it's really nice Beijing has changed entirely uh, over, the, over the last yeah like 18 years really but, well um, I was there when I was 16 and I am much older than you and it that is for a different podcast but yeah it's <laughs> when I was there it was all bikes and now of course it's you know not so many bikes but a lot of uh, cars but seen, you, like, yeah the city center has changed a lot now it's like it used to be just school and embassies and they've all moved closer to the airport and outside the city and, and it's just now hotels and bars everywhere and it's actually quite lovely to be honest it, um, it, it's got a massive uh, nightlife as well did you speak and learn how to speak any yeah, Chinese while absolutely. you were there? Yeah. Do you still remember it? I still speak. You still Mandarin, speak? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Now, did you go to a French school? Yeah. You had to, I guess. Well, right? yeah, at the time, or an international. I went to the, the uh, yeah, Beijing French school, basically. And uh, that's yeah where I got to learn um, quite heavily and, and quite fast English and Chinese. And where did you move um, after when you came back? Did well, you move to <laughs> France? Yeah, I moved back to France. So my uh, my dad basically got another job in Paris. So because we were such a big family, he decided to move a bit further down in the suburbs near Versailles, uh, actually in the town that he used to live as a, as a child and where my, my grandparents have been living for probably 40 years now. And let's say I was a, I was a bit of a difficult teenager, so I was sent to a, a military high school, uh, basically. Was that really tough? It, it was, but all things considered, like, I'm, I'm very happy I went there. It just, it just, there was nothing, you know, like when I say that to people, they imagine like shooting ranges and, and not at all. It was just, we had uniforms. Yeah, we, we, we had to, to sing the national anthem once in a while. We had to, to dress up nicely. We had to do, but most importantly, we just had to do cores. Like, I mean, we had to take our own, own, own rooms, big deal. You know, we had to sweep and mop. We had to tidy our beds. We had to bring the, the sheets to uh, to people to clean them and everything and it's just you just had to be organized and clean and just respect one another because there was quite a quite a lot of us and that's that's literally it and um, I was very happy about this it just helps you keep your bed tidy really uh, and, and that, that's that, that's all there was nothing to obviously there's, there's people that really love their displaces and you've got like anywhere else you've got little groups from you know the people that were sent there by their parents but still pretend they're punks to the kids from very traditional Catholic families uh, with names even longer than mine, and uh, you know that will literally slap you in the face if you say "God damn it!" Oh boy! Because you shouldn't use the names, the Lord's name in vain, basically. So it was it was fun, but it's at the end of the day, it's like any other school. The main difference is because we all wear the same clothes. Well, you actually have to get to talk to people before knowing them. You just you don't don't assume anything from anyone, which actually is a lot better than than regular school for me. I, I wouldn't mind anyone to be in a uniform in, 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 in primary school and high school because you kind of have to talk to other people to see if you're actually going to like them or not. 
rather than just assume from their clothes. Did you change a lot, do you think, from that difficult teenager to, you know, do you think it helped you? Yeah, it probably did. I mean, uh, I had a relapse around 20s, my, my early 20s, but yeah, it, it's... It calmed, it calmed me a bit and it just helped me to be a, a bit more diplomatic, let's say, rather than just constantly say what I think, <laughs> which sometimes gets you into, into trouble. Yes, it can. Um, did, did you know what you wanted to, or have an idea what you wanted to do when you kind of grew up, I say in inverted commas? Yeah, yeah. Not, not really. I mean, I, I wanted to be a teacher or something like that. I just, I just wanted, to, I wanted to, to teach people. I wanted to, to share knowledge. I, I used to read a lot and, and watch a lot of movies and I, I still do probably a lot less because I, I don't have as much free time but that's I, I, I wanted to share stuff with people and it's, it's, it's difficult when you when you try to talk to, to people about a book that you read for instance and, and all they want to talk about is the game they watched last night. So I wanted to find other people to try and share that and then uh, and then maybe just teach them basically and that, that was it was a very vague idea history teacher English teacher something like that maybe something that was kind of easy because it would just have to be me doing what I was already doing basically but getting paid for it mm-hmm. <laughs> so did you you went to university though so basically uh, there was a, a little lap so I, after three and a half year in that military school because I I dabbled my uh, my year 10 because I was not very uh, studious. Um, my dad got a new job at the French Embassy in uh, Canberra, Australia. So I basically had to finish my year 12 uh, in Australia. So I was specialised in uh, languages. I was studying English, German and, and Chinese, uh, Latin and ancient Greek, and then literature, philosophy, history, basically. So just kind of... If you'd say that to any French person, it's like the, kind of the lazy stuff, basically, because you don't study any it, economics, any math. You're just just reading books and just chatting about them. So, well, it doesn't sound lazy to me. I have to admit, it was, <laughs> it was quite right. But um, yeah, I basically I was not very happy there because well, my dad was very busy, and we we were there was just two out of the five kids that went there because my mom had a different job that was quite important, so she needed to finish it before. So the family split a bit, just geographically, really, uh, and. It was, yeah, just, you know, for half a year, go to a, the other side of the world, try to restart again something. And, yeah, and you don't know anyone there. So I just decided to, to do something else. And one of my friends from, from the military school told me that he was going to do this uh, BTS, which is basically a, a two-year cursus uh, in, it's a beautiful name, it's called International Trade, which means absolutely nothing, really. Um, so I was like, you know what, if this, um, let's go back. And basically on the, on, on my 18th birthday, I told my, my dad that I would be leaving in a month back to France. And my parents arrived, like my mom and the rest of the family arrived. And the next day I was gone basically back to France. So I did this, this thing in, for two years. So I was 18 and, and a week and I had to find my own flat and started this study, which basically was one, one week in school, one week in a job to try and, and start something and get obviously completely underpaid for everybody else's job, which which is still something that happens everywhere. But uh, I I did that studied you know microeconomics, macroeconomics, law. Um, continued to do German and English and Chinese, and yeah, realized that uh, I never wanted to do that ever again. Um, <laughs> the nine the nine to five life was not really for me. What kind of jobs were you working in? 
well, I was supposed to be I was supposed to be uh, helping in like marketing and trade and stuff, and I basically got for two years uh, pushed back to help the accountant, um, which again, like in retrospective, I'm very happy about because it. I'm one of these person that actually I have no problem with accounting. I don't I don't mind Excel files. I, I don't they they don't scare me, but I literally did that, and I and she was not very organized, so I had to to help a lot. Um, but yeah, it was not what I wanted to do. And like all the, the marketing stuff they would give me was just to put stamps on invitations for galas. And I was like, yeah, this is, mm-hmm. it's not really a marketing plan. I'm not really learning anything. So I stayed until the end to, you know, get the diploma. And then my parents were coming back to France. And since the job obviously finished with the diploma, because otherwise they would have to give me a real salary. So they shook my hand and say, good luck for the future. Um, so I just kind of went back to my parents at 20 years old, basically. And, and it was not, it's never, it's never good when you left once to, to come back and they were not really expecting it either. They would have probably preferred to just pay for my studio and me stayed there because they were, they were counting on four kids and not five. So suddenly, you know, and a a grown one at that. So, so I was there for, for a few months and I realized I had to A, find a job and B, find something else to do to show them that I was not just going to stay on the cash all day and do nothing and, and just take their money. So I was wondering what to do. And I was looking at universities just to, to do something like just another three-year diploma or something to just get by. And the one that caught my eye was um, that um, uh, American and British literature and civilization. And I was like, I, I looked at the program. I had read half the books already. I spoke English fluently. So I was like, well... This is not going to be hard at all. Um, it was. I, I didn't count for linguistics and stuff like that, which is really horrible. Uh, <laughs> write phonemes and, and, and stuff like that. But uh, I went there and um, and 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 I uh, I did that for a couple of years. Did you have a goal at that point? Not at all. You it was were... just just to show my parents I was I was not going to be the the, the lazy twenty year old just uh-huh. staying there. So it was just to get me out of bed basically. And I went there. And I tried to find a few jobs on the side. I was, I mean, throughout throughout the years, I, I was a I was a teacher's assistant. I was I was a I was a butcher at the time as well, uh, which was horrible because uh, it's a big family, and when you're not part of it, it's actually not easy to fit in. But mm-hmm. I was I was doing like Saturdays and Sundays from like five a.m. to three p.m. Just come in, and when you're a teenager, it's also you know coming hungover at five a.m. to touch cold meat is not the best <laughs> feeling in the world. But I, I did that, and then uh, in, in France, you've got this basically this kind of every every butcher shop would have the um, like this machine with roasting chicken just out on the street to make sure people would come and smell it, buy it. And I was just there doing that, so I I got I still have like oil burns all over my forearms, and I was just doing that. And you come home and you smell like fry, and it's horrible. I, I, it was probably the healthier I, I was ever because. You never you, ate a chicken, oh, right? You, you don't want to. You want steamed steam vegetables and fish. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, they ended up firing me because the, um, the girlfriend's, one of the, the, the junior junior guy's girlfriend needed a job. So, like, you're out. We'll take her instead because we know her. And so I was like, damn it. I need I need to find something. I need because by then my parents were asking me to pay rent, uh, which is unnatural, I think. Uh, so it just kind of came really, really weirdly. I... We had this pub uh, near near the university, which is called the Old Alliance. Um, so really, really good for us. Mm-hmm. We can still talk about British uh, 
civilization and, and, and the old um, friendship between Scots and French. Um, so we just went there for, for happy hours because, you know, you're cheap when you're a student. And one day it was too packed and we had to just go further down the street and I found this place called La Perla. It's a Mexican joint, really fun, uh, really friendly and, and warm and, and, and they had happy hours too, so that was great. And behind the bar was a guy I hadn't seen in years who was with me in Mitai school. So I went in, chatted him up a bit, uh, you know, caught up a bit and that was really fun. So we decided to start going there for drinks, obviously for the happy hour. And I, I befriended the manager and that was right before I got uh, fired from the, from the butcher's job. So I got fired. So suddenly I didn't have any money to buy my drinks, uh, which was a bit awkward, especially when you <laughs> like having a drink. So I, I went there one day and I realized that they were looking for a waiter. And I was like, hey, I, I've been here on, on opening times. I've been here until close. I know exactly how to do all this because I see you do it. I've tried every single drink on the menu. Like I can, I've got a good memory. I can just tell you right now everything that's on the menu. I can tell you exactly what's on uh, every single dish. Can I have a job? And they were like, okay. And at that time, I just thought that, you know, being a waiter was just basically being a glorified plate carrier, basically. I, I never thought too much of, of it. And I was just, yeah, it's, I can carry a tray. I'm one of these guys that can carry four plates on one, one arm. I'm, that's, it's logical to me. And I, I, I think I am a logical person. So logical and good memory, you should, you should be able to do that. And it, it, it shouldn't take much more than that. Um, how wrong I was. Um, <laughs> because... I wasn't expecting you to say that. No, it's, 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 uh-huh. sad, sadly it is. Like the, 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 the tray carrying part is easy. But it's about everything else. It's about, um, I mean, Sasha, Sasha Petrasco, who opened Milk in New York, uh, and I'll completely misquote him, obviously, but said something along the lines of, give me someone for 15 minutes and I'll show them how to make the, the, pe- the perfect dry martini. But that's not what a bartender is, is about. It's about smiling after an eight, nine-hour shift. It's about reaching out to the foot, like further in the freezer, even, even though you're back starting to get that colder glass. Um, it's, about the, it's about these things. It's about managing your emotions and your guests' emotions. It's the hospitality part. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not something, I don't think that's something you can teach. You can teach someone to carry trays. You can train your memory. You, you cannot train someone uh, to, 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 to react, basically. And I think... When, when we hear people here, I always say, I want personalities, not egos. Because the, the greatest sin of all in this job is pride. And you should never take anything personally. If a guest is mad at you, it's not about you. They had a bad day. Try to make it better for them. And, and if they don't want to interact with you, well, so be it. Be, be good for them by not being there. Mm-hmm. And you can't take anything personally. Um, even if they're rude, even if they insult you a bit. It's not really about you. They're just trying to assess their authority on you in some weird way, and and it shouldn't bother you because at the end of the day, you're here to make drinks. Basically, you're not here to analyze them. You're not their teacher. You're not their their psychiatrist. You're not their parents. We're not here to teach manners. Sadly, uh, there's a there's, there's obviously a difference between ill-mannered and insulting. If someone insults you, you're yes, you can't take that. But if someone forgets to say thank you or please, or is a bit harsh when they ask something, or won't look at you when they order. Well, we're all different. Mm-hmm. It, shouldn't, it shouldn't affect you that much. And that's, I think, that's what just slaps you in the face when you start working, f- like, full-time in, in this sort of, uh, of places. And I just... When you were at La Perla, yeah. 
How long did it take you to start getting comfortable with that? Well, the problem is I was, from day one, very comfortable. Ah, uh, so you just for, took to it immediately. Not for the right reasons. No, because I talked back a lot. Oh. <laughs> and in a, in a laid-back, friendly, young environment with happy hours, some things can be said. But I, 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 wouldn't, I, I wouldn't talk back to my customers today the, the way I did back then. Um, I've, I've hopefully grown a bit. And it still happens sometimes. Like even even to this day, someone says something to you, and you can't help yourself. And were you told off for it? Yeah, yeah. I got. I almost got sacked um, because of the way I talked. Not not necessarily to customers, but with my staff. Um, uh-huh. Because I just believed I was better than them, and I just basically told them what to do. Although we were supposed to be on the same. Uh, level and they just complained because was this right away when you got the job or how long were you uh, in a year in maybe yeah uh-huh. so I, I I realized that it was again not only about guests but certainly also about your staff and and every every single person you you have to 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 take to take care about I think it's why did you think you were better because I was more organized because I could take more orders at once like it's it's it was old-fashioned day it was you had basically nothing on you and you'd come back to the bar write everything on a piece of paper stack one piece on the bar if they had ordered food go all the way to the kitchen and stack the orders up and and I could take three four five tables without blinking and I would remember everything and I would come to the table remember what every single person had I wouldn't have to ask and that sort of thing so it made me faster and more efficient and I just got frustrated to see people just uh-huh. coming back to look at a ticket they had written because they had forgotten what they had just ordered or if it was the correct Boy, you're t- thing. Yeah, you're tough. That. Well, it's yeah. just, it's working. I think working in a bar is exactly like driving. Um, there's one thing to do, which is in front of you and you should be focused on that. But you also have to be aware of everything around you. Otherwise, you're driving into a wall or someone's mm-hmm. going to drive into you. Mm-hmm. It's... All these small details, like if a bartender's focused and you're behind him, say, backs, or touching him on the shoulder, or both, uh, looking at everyone that's working around you, you're carrying a tray, but there's also two other people carrying trays, for instance, so make sure you're not going to... I've seen that in, in places, just people, you know, just running into one another because it's a bit busy and they're not looking, and, and it's about all this, and it's about it's about being fast, but being very, very fluid, it's about being laid back if you're too stressed you're you you're too tight in your own body and and you can't stop you can't just just give a little step on the side to um it's like dancing really sometimes so it's, was it a wake-up call when you almost got fired was this something oh, where no, you no, thought no, i didn't learn at the time no <laughs> <laughs> i meant did you feel like oh i'm gonna miss this job if i'm not here i'm i'm starting was, to enjoy this it was still for the money it was just okay. it was just, just like I thought I could be a teacher, just like I did this, this um, British and, and American literature exhibition, it just felt natural. I just, it was something I could do, and I was, I was immediately, I was good at it. And I'm, I'm not an overachiever. I'm not very ambitious. I don't think I am. Uh, I like when I'm already good without doing anything, which means that if I just put a tiny bit of effort, I can be very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I don't have to be excellent because no one is we all have flaws we all make mistakes and the, the the sooner you understand that and the sooner you understand that if you don't know how to do something the best way to fix that problem is ask around 
Of course, you're sitting here saying that in one of the most famous bars in not only London, but the world. So, you know. Yeah, you, I, would, you know. I, would have, I would have said that anywhere. I think it's, it's really important. Like I have, I have people I, I still text on my phone if I'm not sure about a cocktail recipe because I don't, I don't pretend to know them all. I, uh, I know a few and, and I'm happy with my knowledge and I continue to learn. Um, that's probably what, what got me so far is out of all the jobs I, I tried, it's the only one where I realized I could learn or teach something every day. Um, you work in accounting, you work with accountants, you talk with accountants, you go out with accountants. God, they're dull. You, you, you're a teacher. Not you... all are dull. <laughs> Just the ones you've met may Just be dull. French accountants okay, Some accountants dull. might be listening to this. They're not all dull. Some of them like to have cocktails. All right? <laughs> my, my, uh, my personal history with accountants was not the funniest one. But um, at the end of the day, a bartender, like on my, my first year at ECC, for instance... I, I was oh, wait, wait, wait a sec. Okay. Because too, not everyone's going to know what ECC is. Experimental but, okay. Cocktail Club. All right. So <laughs> when did you, while you were working at La Perla, did you think, or maybe you don't think this way, but um, this is, I could, I could do this for a career or. So the, the, the day I realized that was, um, that's, that's kind of the wake up call. Uh, I was just slouching at the bar because. In my little mind, I was happy and content with the situation in my room on the floor. And my manager, who's one of my dearest friends, just came to me and said, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh. And I answered the thing that I think all managers in the world, they would hate you, they would slap you, they would, when you say that, I've done everything. And she was like, uh-huh. oh, what? I said, oh, Everything's under control. I've done everything. I've got nothing to do right now. And she said, well, the menus on the bus could uh, use a wipe. Uh, that table's nearly done. And um, you haven't put the ticket for the, for the dessert right now. Because if they're really done and you don't have anything to you, you can do that and save them a minute. Uh, this, this, that. And suddenly I realized that from my perspective, it was okay because no one was needing anything at the moment. But I was not... It, it, trying to find what they were expecting. And I was not looking a couple of minutes forward in the future to make sure I could meet their expectations and I would be there. The minute their eyes would go up to find a waiter to call him for the menu, I'd be there with the menu, um, to be there with the water, to be there to take their plates. And, and I was like, yes, you're absolutely right. And then she added something and she was like, you think you know it all? And I was like, well, I know the menu. I know, I know everything. And she was like, well, what about this tequila? Is Lapola is specialized in Mexican spirits. So even at the time, it's, it's been around since 1988 in Paris. And we had something like 70 plus tequilas and mezcals, which even to this day is still quite a lot for any, any Mexican joint, basically. And, uh, and she was like, what can you tell me about any of them? And I realized that, yeah, I maybe knew two, three of them. And that's the one I sold. And once in a while, I would just decide to upsell one, taste it give my tasting notes to the, to the customers and try to, try to sell that one. And, and from then, I tried almost every single tequila. Every day, I would, at the end of the shift, I would take 20 so minutes. So that was a total wake-up call. But yeah, like, I realized oh, there was oh, still boy. so much to learn, basically. Uh-huh. And, um, and that was also very, very interesting for me because unlike most bartenders, the first spirit I got into and the first spirit I got really knowledgeable about was tequila. And it's not something that happens a lot. It's, it can be often gin because gin is the cocktail spirit. And it can be rum because it's sweeter. 
and for me it was tequila and was it because you worked there or yeah. you just oh yeah of course I mean and well what um, were you drinking you know before your family did they drink oh, anything wine just wine a lot of wine <laughs> you're French always wine alright uh, but so, then yeah and like in pubs mm. I was never a beer fan so in pubs I would drink whiskey coke and, and just shots really mm-hmm. uh, anything a bit sweet um, and so tequila was really your first and it was of- it was the first thing I started sipping really neat basically uh, and like anything else because you'd, you'd shot whiskey or rum in bars and you wouldn't really like the taste it was to get drunk uh, and then you'd sip on a, on, a, on a tasteless beer to wash it down basically and, and it was the first time I actually took a glass and not shoot it basically of neat spirit and yeah and I realized I really liked it and I really wanted to to know more uh, about that and and at the time the second venue of, of the experimental cocktail club called Curio Parlor which sadly uh, closed uh, a while back, uh, was a, a 10, 15 minute walking distance. And I knew the guys uh, and we would close at 1.30, I believe, and they would close at four on the weekends. So on Saturday and, and, and Fridays, I'd go there for a drink or two. And, and it was a completely different vibe. Like I was making happy hour mojitos, you know, and they were making Manhattan's and Vieux and dry martini to, to another stand, like, standard and and after another year at La Perla I was kind of bitching about the fact that I was not making manager I was not making any progress and I was just there half drunk at, at Curio and the manager there Arthur looked at me and he was like well why don't you quit bitching and just give me your CV then and it's the first time I realized that maybe I, I maybe had something to give and, and there was other, other ways to learn so I gave my CV and I was hired within like the next couple of months and gave my gave my notice, say thanks very much. And again, like twelve years later I still go to La Perla. The managers that I had at the time are still there. And and it still gives me great joy to go there. Every time I'm in Paris, I will try to stop at La Perla and have a margarita with them or something. And it's it's really nice. Uh when I left the um, the owner, Thomas Tess, told me that he was he was happy that I was leaving and <laughs> And, and I was going to try other things and spread my mm. wings. And, but this will always be my home. Well, that's and, very nice. And I met him a couple of years later on Maiden Lane in London uh, at La Perla. Just by mistake, he was there and I was there just on the weekend. And the first thing he said to me was, welcome home. And I was very happy. I have, I have nothing but love for that man. Uh, so when you made the shift to... Um, Curio ex- Parlor. Yes, yeah. experimental, ETC, yeah. whatever... Um, was it what you had expected or, you know, tell me about that, the process of transition well, and what you learned there. Curio Parlor compared to TCC was um, a much smaller, much hidden place. So we wouldn't be too busy, which means that we could really focus on the quality. Uh, we were the only uh, Nikka bar outside of Japan, for instance, which means that we had so much Japanese whiskey all over the place. Uh, limited editions, vintages that no one could get their hands on and so we had basically from from the kids that would come for cheap drinks I started serving people that would actually know what they were talking about basically and I started learning classics like like the London Calling for instance, the first time I, I met London Calling was, was at Curio Parlor and, or the French Pearl or just a, a Vieux Carré which became my, my favourite drink uh, at the time and it was just a more knowledgeable clientele, but still, you could still teach them stuff. 
or you could learn from them. Uh, at the time, I was always happy to listen to people tell me what they normally like because I was the junior, so they would tell me, oh, normally Arthur makes me this, or oh, can I just wait for Arthur to be back so he'll make me a drink? And, and on one side, it was very frustrating, but on the other side, it just showed me that it was actually a job. There were people better than me, and I just had to learn even more to, to be at their level. And I stayed a year with Arthur there, and I think that's the most I learned in such a little time. Um, and when I basically got kind of good enough, he kind of uh, kind of ditched me. Pushed and, you out of the nest. Uh, yeah, because he, I think he loves forming people. I think he loves just molding a bit someone that doesn't have much experience to a good standard. And then he basically kind of pushed me to ECC. And and again, a big change. Um, Arthur and I would listen to rock music uh, and a bit of like slow rap, making cocktails in the in the dark, and I and and wearing waistcoat and being all professional and calm. And I moved to ECC, where everyone was wearing kind of like open shirts, and music was blasting three times, and there was four times more people. And when I arrived there, for instance, I thought that I was already pretty good, efficient, and I was pretty fast. And I arrived there, and on a Saturday, you'd be two behind the bar, and you'd be serving 80 people. Um, I mean, we'd, we'd be making 600 cocktails on the night there, just two guys behind the bar, one person on the floor, and one person barbacking. And the manager there, uh, Mika, was just a beast of efficiency. He was, he's, to this day, I believe he's still one of the, probably the, the, one of the top three best bartenders in France. And the guy would just make 20 drinks at the same time, clock anyone that would pass the door and say hi say bye to anyone say to people I'll be with you he was making four things at the time with without looking like he was breaking a sweat and I realized that I wanted to be like that which instantly I never I never managed to because I'm way too stressed compared to him he was a very calm person I never was I was always the I was always the stressed one in that bar uh, no matter who I worked with the other one would be the calm one I would be the one being very fast making drinks not retalking and I learned a lot with him. Then he left and I had a, another manager there and I became uh, assistant general manager. And we worked there for, what, three years together? Something like that. And was this then when you thought, okay, this is going to be my career? Absolutely. It's, when I was at ECC, it was, just, it was just joy. I didn't feel like going to work. I would do so many hours and I was just happy about it. And, and yeah, everything was kind of fine, but... Um, because to, Paris has an incredible, obviously, with ECC and everything. Well, at the um, time, there wasn't much, basically, and, and so... But it was growing and growing. Why did you decide to come this side of the channel? Um, you know, there's uh, this saying about this, being the smartest man in the room. I believe that if you feel you're the smartest man in the room, you should leave the room and find another room, basically. And it was a time in my life where I basically I started managing a bit. But I was offered more like desk managing stuff, like supervising and everything. And I told I told the guys, the the the, the bosses at ECC that I I could do that like a day, maybe two a week. But I still wanted to do shifts. It's still still what I want to do. Even today here, like I I try to I try to make sure I I have a few floor shifts, bar shifts. It's it's what I do. I'm I'm a bartender at first, and and also you can't tell people what to do if they can't see that you do it better than them, basically. Um, I think that's that's appalling people that will tell you what to do when you've never seen them behind a bar ever. Mm-hmm. 
And, and so I thought, you know what? This is not going to work because they really want me to be on a desk and I really want to work in a bar. And, you know, they had a place here. I mean, I, I came for a month in 2012 to, to do a few, um, a few, uh, what, a month, I think, uh, to work here because I was getting a bit bored over there. And they sent me here. We just swapped. So I just right, get... Because when ECC opened here, you mean? Yeah. I gave yeah. my keys, I gave my keys to, to one of the guys from here. Uh, he, gave me, he gave me his <laughs> and we just swapped for a month. And it was really fun. And again, learned completely different things uh, with the managers there at the time. And was there a difference in the, um, the crowd, like from the French to the English? Did they order oh, yeah. different things or? No, they just order faster. Um, I think, I think. Did they expect it faster or? No, no, they just drink faster. There's, oh. uh, there's, uh, there's something a bit. They drink more? Because they're drinking in, faster? In, in, yeah, I think, I think French people drink a lot more, but we are used to drink and eating at the same time. Whereas I think, I think the, the English crowd tends sometimes to just come out of work on an empty stomach, have, you know, have quite a few and then just go home basically. Whereas French people would leave work, go home, maybe have a beer uh, at home, get changed, have a snack. Uh-huh. And then by the time you start drinking, it's actually 10. Like, I know. It's an early day. Yeah, it's... Or something. So it's a, it's a very different way. It's an early crowd of, uh, in England. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's, a, it's a different way of, of doing it. Like, mm-hmm. like ECC in Paris will be packed until four. Um, here, for instance, Milk is open until three. Past 1 a.m., it, it really dies down, basically. You, you still have people, and especially our members know that they can come that late. But it, it, it's, really, it's really more of an earlier crowd, I'd say. But it was it was really fun, and then I obviously I still knew the guys from from here, like the the, the owner uh, of, of ECC London, Xavier. And I don't know how I was chatting about about that to who. Um, oh, to a friend called um, Nico De Soto, who helped uh, uh, in in London and then in the New York side, and now is uh, the president of uh, several bars across uh, across the world. And he told me that I should speak with Xavier because there was some place uh, needed someone and. Uh, I had been to Happiness Figures before, but basically thanks to Nico and Xavier, I got in touch with um, Alistair uh, Burgess and uh, and I came for the weekend and we chatted a bit and he was like, yeah, cool. Like if, you know, if Nico and Xavier vouch for you and, you know, let's let's do that. And um, it didn't last. Uh, I think I was there for four or five months max. I think, I think I was too eager to move and I think he was too, he was relying too much on people he knew and trusted. And I think if we had talked a bit more together, we may have realized that we, we were probably not the, the best choice for one another, um, which is fine. Happiness for Guests is, is still a great bar and they still have uh, great bartenders there. I have nothing but, but, but respect and love for that place. So for the first time in my life, I, I didn't leave a job because I had to. Uh, bec- uh, I, I left a job sorry, because I had to, not because I, I wanted to go elsewhere. So it was a bit... A bit weird for me. Did, were you um, set on staying in London? I didn't know what. I, I, was, I, I came through Happiness Forgets and suddenly right. there was no more Happiness Forgets for me. So I was wondering and, and basically I realized that an old friend of mine from the ECC days uh, was helping opening a place. And that place happened to be the old player site, which was owned by the same guys at Milk and Annie. And they were selling it to uh, the co-owner of the Sherry Butt, which is... But I think we'll come to that later. Probably my favorite bar outside of London. Um, and so I just called them. They were old friends, like the owner and, and that guy that was going to be the general manager or co-owner or whatever. And I, I called Billy and said, hey, do you, do you have a job for me? And he was like, well, 
I have no management position because that's already filled. But if you want to bartend a job, and I was like, I need to bounce back, so let's do that. Um, so I helped open that place called Basement State Cocktails and Desserts, uh, which was really fun. That was one of the first things I ever wrote about. Basement State? Yep. It's. It was. I love this. Then place. it was beautiful. cocktails and desserts. It it still is, but I mean, it's been there for what now, four or five years. Yeah. Billy has kind of opened it more. The, the crowd that comes during the week and the weekend is completely different. So you, you, I think you have, no matter where you are, you have to, to adapt a bit. So there's a bit more. There's also some savory snacks as well. Desserts are still like the main stuff. But, you know, if you come early in the night, better to have like a baked camembert than, uh-huh. than a, a chocolate tart. It's not what you want before, before dinner. So there, there's a few more options. The cocktails are slightly more complicated, I think. Like we were so happy to work with the kitchen. I, I think I've made some of the most creative drinks ever there. Because, again, I learned something new. Um, every time the chef was basically using something or discard, dis- discarding it. And, and it's not about, for me, it's not about zero waste or whatever. It's about, huh, what is this? Why does it smell like this? What does it taste like this? Could I put that in a cocktail? And, and it was really fun. The problem is, obviously, it was, a, it was an opening. So we didn't know how, how it was going to be. So we're always a bit understaffed because, well, everything has a cost. So I was there in the morning to do all the, um, all the preps, then I would do all the, uh, the orders, then I would do all the deliveries, then I would do the shift, then I would do the cleaning, because I, I believe they still do, just clean everything uh, after yourself. And I think it's, if you clean your own station in your bar, why not just do the floor as well, basically? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very long hours, and after a year, year and a half, I told him, listen, I, I'm not leaving yet, but I'm, I need to find something else, because I need to be part of like a, a bigger team and and I can't do everything by myself, uh, which is ironic when I think about it today. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and obviously at the time, Milk and was around the corner and I knew a few of the guys. So I would, I would come for a drink once in a while, just have to shift, sit in the red room, which is my favorite room in the world, probably. And, and I was just happy there. And, uh, and I knew the general manager at the time and he told me, hey, we're going to hire soon. Like, do you want to come, basically? And I was like... Hell yeah, like Milken and he sounds like the exact next step to, again, continue to learn stuff. And so I joined here in December 2015, uh, if I'm correct, the 7th of December 2015. Uh, yeah, and I've been here ever since. And what were you doing when you first got here? I was, um, I was a bartender. I was just a bartender. And then the, um, the general manager left in September the next year. Well, supposedly, and I have interviewed Mia and people who've worked here before, that it is just so tough. You have exams and it is, you well, know, I like think, going to school again. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's important. I think it's, I, I was never much for hierarchy in, um, in a place. I mean, as long as I'm in charge, obviously. Um, but I think everyone should be on the same stage. So here, basically, you've got everyone should be a junior bartender, because there's not there's nothing for me more frustrating as a barman or as a guest that asking a question to a floor staff and that they reply, "Let me check with the bartender." It's a waste of time. It's a mm-hmm. waste of, of of steps. It's a so we try to make sure that everyone knows the same, and the only people that don't know the same just know more, basically. I mean, we have a library upstairs of, I don't know, 200 books that uh, they can all take. We do master classes and then tests on this master classes every month. So, you know, every month has a theme, principle of distillation, gin, brandies, 
uh, and so on. And yeah, and then, you know, whoever wins gets a bottle of bonus, a night out with ah. me, whatever. So there's um, incentive to win. Yeah, of course. It's mm. not just about, you can't ask the best of people and then not, not deliver something in return. I mean, it's, it is a give and take situation. And when you ask for so much, you need to be prepared to, to give something in return, basically. Um, and, and I think it's just, it's, it's based on healthy competition, you know? Uh, again, the fact that no one is really, apart from me, uh, higher than anyone else. But I mean, if I'm at the bar making a cocktail, I expect the guys on the floor, the guy barbacking anyone to just tell me, fix that wash line. Are you proud of that garnish? And I'll fix it. Because working in a bar is not about yourself. It's about the persons you serve. And the only person that are actually focused on homemade ingredients, uh, homemade tincture, uh, ice programs, water programs, whatever, are the bartenders. Like the person sitting at a table will have time for you for bits and bobs of information, but at the end of the day, they want usually their, their drink to look nice and to taste nice. And the rest doesn't really matter. So that's what we focus on. We focus on making sure that all the drinks are made a certain way, that everyone makes them the, the, the same way. The ethos at Milk and Honey is that if you drink a, a drink here, it should be replicable anywhere else. So we don't do any homemade ingredients. We only use fresh fruits. We do have a nice program, but that's because we believe in the in the red room or members lounge that if you carve ice to a certain size and a certain weight, uh, depending on, on, on what you're going to put in there, you can, and it's very obnoxious to say, but you can control more the temperature drop and the dilution. Uh, you can only do that so much, but that's 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 what we're about. That's why the, the garnishes are always super simple. The glasses are... Again, very simple looking, but it's, we use them because they're perfect for us to... They are stacked in a fridge without breaking and, and so on. And that's, for, for us, what, what, what's the most important, that the drink arrive at the table cold and that it stays cold as much as we can and that it tastes nice, basically. And you have, I guess, I always call it the burden of history, but it does it's not so much a burden. But the idea that you know, Sasha is looking down and watching, or, you know, you have this to one I, of the most famous people in the world in this, in this world, you know, linked to this bar and you want to do him proud. Yeah. Um, for me at the end of the day, and, 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 and obviously there's absolutely no, nothing but respect for, for Sasha, but I don't care about the bartenders. I want the person that knows nothing about a cocktail to tell us I've had such a great night. The cocktails were amazing. The service was great. I want people that don't know what a cocktail is to tell us that. I, anyone that comes here that's a bartender likes that place and respects it. And, and that's, that's basically already a given, you know, just, just because we're milk and honey. Even if you haven't come, you have high expectations as a bartender because you've heard about it. I want, I want norm, normal people. I want less cocktail educated people to come here and have a great time that's that's the one I I want to focus on and I, I mean it's our 18th birthday this year so I believe that me and every person that has worked here before has, has done that has achieved that I hope I mean otherwise we probably wouldn't be here anymore but it's about it's about the guests that you have whoever they are wherever they come from you just want to make sure they have the best drink and the best service and if they know about drinks good that's that's already 
that's less job for you in a way. But it's always amazing to still in this day and age to 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 show someone that there's something else than a mojito or a daiquiri or a caipirinha and that if they like these things we have something similar but maybe you know with something a bit finer that they can try or just different and at the end of the day if someone wants you know a mojito or a long island iced tea here I'll, i'll make them if i have the ingredients find another recipe i'll make it because at the end of the day i'm not the one drinking the drinks i'm just making them so it's about the person drinking and if they just want a glass of house red Well, we just make sure to stock a good house red. And that's that's what it's all about. It's making the best drink possible, but also be happy to just serve people and whatever they may want. Sounds good to me. So if you couldn't drink at Milk and Honey here in London, uh, do you have a favorite bar? Yes, and it's... Uh... <laughs> It sounds like I'm cheating, but uh, my my favorite bar in in London, uh, without a doubt, and and a second of hesitation, is Satan's Whiskers. And Satan's Whiskers is a in Bethnal Green, which is literally a walking distance from my home, which makes me very happy. But is incidentally kind of Milk and Honey's younger cool little sister. It was opened by by people that worked here, that people that understand the importance of service and drinks. So. If you ask them about any recipes of any drinks they make, the drinks, I'd say 90, 95% would be the exact same recipe as here. Um, not much has evolved regarding that. And that's why I know the drinks will always be impeccable. The second thing is, again, service and knowledge. Just like here, if you go there and ask for drinks, not only will they probably know a bit more than other places, but because it's about service, they won't feel, and that's something that, again, has to do with pride. They won't feel bad about saying, I don't know that drink. Um, can you tell me the recipe or do you want me to look it up? And I think that's very important. You can't know everything all the time. Uh, and I, 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 I never feel as comfortable as being there on a stool and having a drink at, at that bar. It's, it's just like here, but east with a very nice hip-hop playlist. And walking distance from your home. Which is a given bonus, yeah. Even though this is your home city... If you were to go back to Paris, where would you go to drink? So, as I've mentioned a bit earlier, I there's a, there's a few places that I always go back to when I'm in when I'm in Paris. Um, so just to to give a bit of love, uh, one of my friends, Joseph, who I believe is one of the other top three best bartenders in France, uh, owns a place called uh, Mabel, which is uh, to call him a rum den. So it's got two of my favorite things. The first thing is a grilled cheese shop when you come in. So you have beautiful cheese toasties to start with, made by, uh, by his partner. Yeah. And, and then he makes drinks. And it's there's a lot of places that would think that, you know, rum has to be kind of tiki and fun. And fun and tiki are two different things, I think. And, and you don't have to be laid back to make amazing rum drinks. And he's got an absolute banging selection of, of rums from all over the place. And most of his drinks are made with rum and are just absolutely amazing. That would be like that would be my little uh, my little number two. Let's say the number one uh, would be Sherry Bot. Um, funny enough, which uh, which was open again by an old friend that used to work at a Prescription, which is one of the other ACC venues. Uh, so I've worked with him some ten years ago or so, and and they opened that place and it's it's been there for what seven years now. 
and it's just it's slightly Japanesey. It's very you know it's about the wood, it's about the, the the rocks all over the place. It's beautiful. There's a blackboard behind the bar with the twelve drinks that they do, and it's that kind of place where they always try to bring you something a bit different, which is what I love. Like every time I go there, there will be something I don't know. Uh, like the last time they used Bissap, which I've never heard about. No. It's a it's a Western African type of hibiscus. Um, and they're always looking for, for new stuff to eat and drink and thinking, can I put that in a, in a cocktail? Um, the last time there was a drink with, Calva- I think, Calvados and a ma- maple and shiitake syrup. Why not? Because actually ma- maple, like anything that's a bit trickly, has a sweetness but also a hint of savoriness. And mm-hmm. adding a mushroom to it is quite wonderful, actually. And and that's what they do. They 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 love cutting ice. They're experts at making little diamonds. Um, everything is just cute and precise and beautiful. And the drinks are just fantastic. And and it opened when again there was not much stuff happening in Paris. And today, with all the bars that there is, and and there are a lot, it's still my favorite place to go back to because I know that the drinks will still be amazing. We stopped right there so Pierre could make me another cocktail. Then I asked him his top tips for the home bartender. I think at home you should focus even more so than in a bar on the taste rather than the looks. So you, you, could, you could talk about a lot of things, but I think the first thing is if you want to make anything from you know, old-fashioned to daiquiris, make your own simple syrup. It's very easy. You just take the same volume of white castor sugar and the same volume of water. You can just stir that directly or you can just use a pan to just make it simmer a bit it will dissolve a lot faster that way you can control the amount of sugar you put in um, I was never a big fan of sugar cubes or um, um, just white, like white castor sugar because there will always be a bit that's undissolved so you don't know exactly how much you're putting so just doing that syrup do you do half a liter you leave that in your fridge you can keep it for you know quite a while um, that would be the first thing the second thing it would be just to always squeeze your juices to go to just keep them fresh um, and and that, that, that would be the two, the two first thing the, the last one would be obviously temperature control I, I, I'm not I'm not really geeky when I'm home but one of the things I really really enjoy is ice um, it doesn't have to look nice but what I usually do is just I grab like a a, a little mold like a cake mold just fill it with water um, Yes, it will be white and won't be transparent. It won't look as nice as as what I could do with a lot more time. But just having that, and then you can just sew bigger shards to just enjoy an old-fashioned or even just a gin tonic. You'll have just the bigger the pieces of ice cube you have and and, and the the slower they they will melt. So your drink will stay colder longer, basically. That's, That's, for me, that's all I really care about. Like, I don't even do simple syrup at home. I just do ice to enjoy a gin tonic once in a while. Great, thanks. Now that we've wet your whistle by drinking a few, I'm sure you can guess what our cocktail of the week is. As Pierre noted, the London Calling was originally created by bartender Chris Jepson as a simple twist on a gin sour. This modern classic cocktail is the only one to appear on every version of their cocktail menu since. Add all of the following ingredients to a shaker. Two dashes of orange bitters, 10 mLs of fino sherry, 
15 ml of lemon juice, 15 ml of simple syrup, and 50 ml of gin. Add ice, then shake, shake, shake. Strain into a coupe glass. Then express the grapefruit twist before popping it into the cocktail. You can find this recipe, more gin recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. As I mentioned, Milk and Honey is one of the four stops on my Lush Life cocktail tour of Soho. You'll have to find all the rest of the stops while on the tour itself. It is a load of fun, and I hope you can join me on your next visit to London. You can buy your tickets at LushLifeCocktailTours.com. If you live for Lush Life, would you consider supporting us by buying us a coffee? Just go to BuyMeACoffee.com slash LushLife, and you can donate once or monthly to make sure we are still here every Tuesday. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is, and always will be, forever, produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. Okay, the second part was mine. Next time on Lush Life, we head back in time to the 1920s with the bright young things at Claridge's, one of the most beautiful hotels in the world. Until that time, bottoms up. <laughs>